Welcome to the Breast of Everything podcast, your trusted resource for breast health information, support, and encouragement. Your host today is Dr. Eric Brown of Comprehensive Breast Care. Welcome. Welcome to the Breast of Everything podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Brown of Comprehensive Breast Care, and we're fortunate today to have my guest, Julie Larson, a psychotherapist from New York, who will talk about survivor guilt. Julie's dedicated a great deal of her career to oncology supportive care. She has a vibrant private practice working with individuals mostly under the age of 40 who face an unexpected medical diagnosis. Julie is a frequent speaker and educator on the impact of a serious in- illness at a young age, living fully after a cancer diagnosis and resilience. Her clinical work integrates cognitive behavioral, mindfulness, and narrative therapy. Working alongside her clients and audiences, Julie helps people identify inherent strength and cultivates additional resilient behaviors to build confidence in their ability to navigate hardship. Julie's clinical work has led her to be a trusted advisor to many advocate organizations, and she's been featured in various publications, including Copy Magazine, Cure, and Refinery59, as well as many other wellness and survivor blogs. Thank you so much and welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you. I think it's an interesting concept, survivor guilt. Um, Maybe if you could take a minute and describe for our audience exactly what survivor guilt is. I'm so glad you asked. And you know, um, Dr. Brown, I, I think that in all of cancer survivorship, survivor guilt is often something that we don't talk enough about. So kudos to your team for scheduling this podcast and and talking more in depth about this topic. Survivor's guilt is is that feeling of not fair and goodness, that, that sense of injustice hits from the moment you hear that word, you have a diagnosis of cancer. But initially, I think some of that fear and uncertainty goes hand in hand with your own health. And, and will your future be stable? And, and where is the horizon line? And will I be okay? And what will happen to me and, and my family? And survivor's guilt kind of flips that on its head. And it's when perhaps you've gotten close to a group of peers or other cancer survivors and others aren't doing as well, or someone unfortunately passes away. And then the question turns from not why me, but why not me? And that's a really confusing feeling. It's a, a sense of not fair. It's not fair that this good friend that I've known is progressing or had a recurrence. But I think there's many different types of survivor's guilt, and that's the most, that's what first comes to mind, I think, when we say those words, cancer survivor's guilt, is when we know someone who's had a progression or a recurrence or has sadly lost their life to cancer, and those questions of why not me kind of are part of the struggle. Yeah, I think that's a, a great description, and we see it every day. I was in office today. And fortunately, a lot of women are diagnosed with breast cancer on a screening study. And that Mm -hmm. means less treatment. That means less recovery. And Mm. many women will say, you know, a lot of people have it worse than me. So I'm doing just fine. And, you know, these uh, women make friends when they're doing radiation. They have a whole group that are there the same time every day. And you see other cancers and other women with breast cancers that aren't doing quite as well. And we take a lot of time 
explaining to them that your cancer is still important. And the fact that it was early diagnosed and readily, easily treated doesn't make it any less of a cancer. And, you know, I have also sat in mixed cancer diagnosis groups where there are different diagnoses of cancer within the room. And I watch uniquely for women with breast cancer where there is a standard of care that for, for some has a, has a pretty good prognosis, I know, but for others not, or people get diagnosed at younger, at earlier stages and in that room, often dismissing themselves or minimizing themselves. Oh, I, I just had surgery. I, I, I just had radiation. I, you know, as if that what you've gone through has been less than somebody else in this space. Yeah. And it, it makes me kind of sad when people view themselves that way because, uh, you know, that diagnosis, once you hear those words, it's it's a life-changing moment. Whether really you have is. to go through yeah. a ton of treatment or just a little bit of treatment, it's still treatment and there's still always right. that risk of recurrence. And, and um, you know, Dr. Brown, I also think that survivors do that for themselves. They dismiss and they minimize, you know, their own diagnosis sometimes in the presence of others. But others do it too. You know, I, I sit in my office with people one-on-one and they walk in the door and they're struggling with survivor's guilt or, or among many complex feelings. And and their their emotion is not only their own, but they've heard it from others. Oh, don't feel that way. You shouldn't feel that way. You've done nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. You are you okay. So I think not only ourselves sometimes minimize, but others who in, in really well-intended ways don't want us to suffer, don't want us to struggle. And so they minimize those feelings of guilt as well. Yeah, it's interesting how others, as well-meaning as they are, are telling you mm-hmm. how you should feel. That is, that is a challenge for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Was there anything in particular in your career that kind of led you to this? Were you, did you gravitate towards it? Or was there patients that kind of you know, struck a chord that made you want to dive more into it? What was it that led you here? I think that what led me to working with those impacted by a medical diagnosis and specifically cancer, I my training is in social work and social workers go through graduate school from a very strength-based perspective um, lens. So our entire training is is kind of this grounding of like where are the what is the resilience? What is what is it that's getting somebody through the day or through this really difficult circumstance of their lives, whatever that might be. And for me, that just my graduate schooling just really bred within me this curiosity and this just interest in listening closely to people. Mm-hmm. And so I I gravitate to working with people with diagnosed with cancer and at this point in my career, many different medical experiences because when they walk in, I'm sitting with people who in many ways were functioning and 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 through their lives and in pretty you know, well-meaning, you know, good ways. And then this diagnosis, an acute diagnosis comes in and that seems to kind of spin everything around and leave people like feeling like, well, now what? And I just find there's something really meaningful sitting there and helping people to kind of reclaim what it is within themselves that has always been there, what Mm -hmm. strengths still exist and what we can build and grow. So I I like that work of kind of putting the mirror up and showing people themselves a little bit. That's kind of part of what drives me to it. Yeah, that's great. I'm I'm a firm believer that 
anybody with cancer, but in our world, specifically women with breast cancer, you really do realize how much strength you have within yourself to get through this. You know, your life on Tuesday is different than it was on Monday once you get that diagnosis and it'll never go back to Monday. No, and and when you're suffering and when it's feeling really um, fragile, it's really hard to see that for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I think it takes having a solid medical team that is sitting around you, a good therapist that you trust and have confidence in, or really intimate good friends who can, like I said, reflect back to you yourself so that you kind of find yourself in this again. And, you know, oh yeah, I I can do this or look at this, you know, show you what you're already doing. I say to people all the time when they're sitting across from me, you're sitting here with me. How did you get here? What, what is getting you from the beginning of the day to the end of the day? Yeah. What stops you from crying? You know, so kind of helping people to begin to look closely at what they're doing on their all on their own. Yeah, it, 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 it's challenging, as I can only imagine, because there it's like the um, stages of uh, grief that you go through. Mm. No matter how minor, quote unquote, your diagnosis might be, you're a different person after uh, the treatment. And um, you'll never be the same, but you could be better. And I think many women find that in themselves. I love that you just said the stages of grief were like a perfect like flow in this too, because I think of survivor's guilt as a, a type of grieving, you know, it's grieving maybe for on behalf of somebody else. Right. And mm-hmm. you're, you're so intimately aware of what that fear is within yourself, that you're feeling it for somebody else. You're grieving it in some ways or, and, and, you know, there are different types of survivor's guilt. And sometimes that grief is something to pay close attention to. What is it telling us? What is it? What is it showing you? In terms of the diagnosis itself, are there different levels of guilt? Are there most or all treated with talk therapy, or are there more severe forms that need more types of intervention? It's an important question. You know, I've referenced a couple of times that there are different types of survivor's guilt. We just classically think of when someone that we know and love or that we're familiar, maybe somebody that you don't even know. You know, I used to work at a national organization and there would be a huge uptick in intake calls when somebody famous, like a celebrity was diagnosed Mm -hmm. um, with a recurrence or someone had passed away that was well-known, Patrick Swayze, Elizabeth Edwards. I remember those moments in my career early on and the flooding of calls. So it may not just be somebody that's close to you, but I think there's other types of survivor's guilt that perhaps are a bit more sneaky that people feel the weight of, but they may, they don't know how to name. And I see that show up when people begin to feel really teary, sadness, or maybe it's pressure and anxiety around um, I, everybody else is telling me that I should feel so different now that I'm post-treatment, that I should do something with the fact that I'm a survivor now, or what have I learned? Or do I, do I have, do I see everything, you know, the, the glasses always have full and you know, mm-hmm. stop and smell the roses. And I'm not feeling that way. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling unmotivated. I'm feeling lonely. And I'm really worried that I'm not doing cancer well. I'm not measuring up in the way that I should having survived this. And I think that's a form of survivor's guilt. Yeah, I totally Um, agree. 
Yeah. And, and I think that's grief too. It's you're grieving the life that was before this diagnosis and, and really working to better understand yourself now and cancer change, as you know, you know, cancer changes you 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And it takes time to learn how. And it's interesting because often we will see a patient kind of mid-treatment. So they've finished their surgery, they've finished either chemotherapy or radiation, and they come and see us. And one of their biggest complaints is that they're exhausted, that they're just exhausted. And I mm -hmm. think that what most don't understand or realize is the amount of energy, both physical and emotional energy, that goes into getting diagnosed, whether it be a mammogram first and then diagnostics and waiting for results. And by the time you're done with your treatment, anybody would be emotionally exhausted at that point. Truly, truly. And, and I think that, you know, one of the first things I say to my clients that I work with and where I always often begin in my work in my office about self-care is step one, let's begin cultivating a habit of noticing. Because to your point, um, you're going through appointment, 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 you're managing side effects, you're getting, you're still living your life. I mean, you're a whole lot more than cancer, right? So there's still other things that are happening in your world. And all of that is happening. And, and sometimes we're not even really noticing how we're feeling, you know, how am I doing here? And so that's, I would say the first muscles to begin to build is just to begin to notice how am I doing? Am I mm -hmm. feeling agitated? Am I feeling lonely? Am I feeling misunderstood? Am I feeling really sad? What What is that? And that begins to lead the way to caring for yourself. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. I think that, you know, many times uh, in, in that stage of your treatment, you find yourself driving in your car alone and all of a sudden mm -hmm. overwhelming sadness comes over you. And why is that happening now? I've just had my surgery. I just had my diagnosis, but there's no distraction at that point. So you can really absorb what you've just been through and, and what the impact it has on you. Those feelings are waiting for you. I have a question about, we do hear that quite often about, uh, you know, it wasn't as bad for me. It was like it was for somebody I met at radiation, or you start to get this sense that there's either a little bit of depression or this survivor's guilt. When is it time for us as clinicians to say, you know what, I think we need to maybe get you to talk to somebody? When yeah. is it that and, tipping point? Yeah. And and I, you might have asked me that earlier and I kind of went off on tangent. So thanks for bringing me on back. <laughs> um, you're right. <laughs> you're right. We, 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 when do we know? What's the, what's the, you know, the white flag or that would says, hey, this, we need to pay a little closer attention. I tell my clients and what I'm watching for is how much is this getting in the way? So guilt, sadness, anger, um, all of those are feelings and they're natural and understandable to have. We don't need to pin them down or shove them away or avoid them, letting them in and experiencing them as part of um, caring for ourselves. But when those feelings kind of go ahead have a tipping point and they kind of just are they're increasingly intrusive there it's very it's it's harder to focus when feelings are so fragile that they're right on the surface and they're hard to kind of compartmentalize mm -hmm. or, to, or to, to to focus on work or stay in relationships to be able to navigate and have a spectrum of emotion mm -hmm. that's when i think we need to look a little closer so it's when it's getting intrusive and when it's impacting functioning 
I gotcha. I gotcha. So when your life is kind of somewhat focused on this and you can't get on with the normal daily activities that, that we want yeah. you to get back to. Yeah, it keeps pulling it back. And to have that feeling there is fine. To be able to coexist with two feelings at the same time, I say to my clients, you know, how do you hold hope and fear in one hand? But when you can't do that, when you can't have more than one feeling at a time, that flexibility and that mm-hmm. one is just is kind of persistent. Great, great. Thank you. Thank you for that. I want to transition a little bit. Um, we are seeing more and more younger patients diagnosed with breast cancer, and uh, I have patients in their 20s who are diagnosed. And there are additional issues beyond your chemo, your radiation, your surgery, um, especially in young women who aren't married, haven't had children yet, the effects of chemotherapy on your ability to have children. And I know in your practice, you deal a lot uh, with younger, and I guess how we define young changes every birthday mm-hmm. I have. Um, but <laughs> what are the differences between the, we'll say premenopausal, that's how we gently say younger in the breast cancer world, um, patients that are diagnosed mm-hmm. with cancer? Because I mean, they got their whole life ahead of them and boom, this uh, hammer came down. Yeah, there are some distinct differences and and there's been increasing focus and research on that over the last 15 plus years. Um, I would say um, in my what I would name as one of the biggest ones is that while you are seeing more young women in your office being diagnosed, it is still not the overwhelming number of cancer survivors. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the biggest um, issues for young women or young adults with cancer is a true feeling of isolation. No, likely no one else their age is dealing with this. So it feels very isolating and lonely. And and not only are they going through treatment, to your point, and that's very different than their peers, but they're, you're at an age in your life where you're building your career professionally. And many people don't want this to get in the way of that. It's that, mm-hmm. it's that critical time where you're proving who you are and you're you know, making your way in a professional way. Or you're dating and you're wanting to kind of meet, you're wanting to meet somebody else and share your life with somebody. And not only is this interrupting that moment that feels developmentally right where you need to be, but it's also changing your body. Mm-hmm. And that's a part of that intimacy that just feels really at times insurmountable for newly diagnosed patients or even after treatment. How will I ever be able to talk about this or at a special moment, be able to share myself with someone else that feels so like something that would be scary or hard to do? And then you're right, fertility. I think that that's a significant difference um, that women have certainly options to preserve their fertility. And that's great. And I hope that that's happening in mm-hmm. our in cancer centers. But um, even so, that's not the way you dream about it. That's right. not the way you dream to have a baby. You know, you, you want to meet your husband and, and go to dinner and <laughs> go and make love and have a baby. You don't want right. to do this with science involved. This is so there's loss and there's grief in that too. Even if there's hope or there's an option on the horizon, that hurts. And there's, there's uncertainty in that. Like, will it work? And even if it does work, will I be okay? Am I going to be okay if I have a baby? Will my body be able to do this? My body has not been able to do other. I feel a sense of betrayal or failure in my body by cancer. 
does that begin to make me doubt my body's capacity to do this too? So it's a lot. So I just put a lot on the table, but I think all of that is wrapped into that adolescent young adult experience. Yeah. And I think that uh, those are great points about young women. And and again, in our world, we're talking women, uh, but anybody Mm -hmm. with breast cancer at a young age, and especially when you know, you, you bring a conversation to a marriage and assume that a younger person is early in their marriage that you never thought you'd have. And that is, there's a risk of recurrence. There is a risk that this cancer could come back and we're going to start a family. And how are we going to address that elephant in the room as unlikely as recurrence yeah. might be? It, it has to be a topic of conversation when you're having children and planning a family. And I'm sure husbands have a equally, if not more difficult time with this. Yeah. And that's a lot of different pieces to that fertility conversation, right? The recurrence and the unknown of the future. There's also the waiting. Oh my goodness. The waiting, not just the waiting of going through active treatment and then five years plus, you know, of tamoxifen or whatever that treatment is, Mm -hmm. but so much waiting when you're diagnosed and this was what the next step was. (laughs) This is where we were going by the next six to eight months. And now we're not doing that for five plus years. Holy cow. So that's just in all your friends are, and you feel really out of sync. So that I think it makes it uniquely emotional. And I can throw another little curveball at this whole topic Mm. is that we don't really make women wait five years that you actually, um, under the right circumstance, you could take tamoxifen for a year and have a conversation about stopping therapy to have a child. Now, you're stopping therapy. I mean, that has to have emotional baggage attached to it in and of itself. We have data that say it's safe to do. It doesn't put you at any higher risk. But you got to wonder, right? You got to wonder if maybe this isn't the right thing to do for my family um, as much as the right thing to do for me because of, God forbid, if something should happen going forward. It's a lot of big conversations. And I've had in my my office those those really come up in marriages, right, where one person in the couple is like, there is no way. I'm letting you stop this treatment. No way. And then the woman is like, but this is something that I so desperately want for myself. And and that's hard in a marriage too. So it's a lot. Yeah, it's uh, it's great information. And uh, we're fortunate in our practice. So there's a social worker that specializes in actually in cancer patients. She used to work in an, an oncology department at the hospital, who we mm-hmm. send a lot of patients to for just these kinds of conversations. Because I mean, quite honestly, you know, I'm equipped to tell you about your treatment, but I'm really not equipped to give you guidance in terms of coping with some of the emotional things that come along with the diagnosis, not the least of which is, you know, why did I do so well? But Mary Smith, who I saw every day for four weeks at radiation has a recurrence, like you said. So it's great, great information. Yeah. And that, that is a, again, a great segue to, you know, what do you do with this feeling that bubbles up? And, and I, I appreciate hearing that it, it does come up in your office and that, that women are talking about it or sharing it. And it, it is about finding where you can get the support that you need. Um, the, sometimes that comes from a therapist, the trusted, safe space of a therapy office where you can begin to talk, talk through. Sometimes when, you know, in my office, there's a lot of things that happen in therapy. There's, you know, 
beginning to have self-aware, cultivating and fine-tuning self-awareness, learning coping skills and strategies. But also I often just watch when people are organically just talking and helping me to better understand them, they begin to loosen the knot of what's been so hard within themselves. And so just talking and expressing what's going on is often a relief. And that can happen with really close friends too. So where are your trusted inner circle or a support group where others get it and may understand you? Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julie. Um, If our listeners want to find out a little bit more about you or your work, uh, what would be the best way for them to do that? Oh, great. Well, thanks for asking. Um, right now, I do have a website that people can find and, and learn a little bit about me. My website is com. You can also follow me on social media, Julie Larson LCSW. And I recently did a TED Talk that is exciting. Oh, great. And it is going to be published here any day now. I'm waiting. So, and I will post that everywhere where I am online. So, um, that will be coming out soon. And that would be great. You let us know because we'll definitely promote it on our social media sites. Julie, it, yeah, has it been, will be relevant. It's been a pleasure, really. I thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Survivor's guilt is a, a great topic that I don't think a lot of people know a lot about. So mm. again, thank you for taking the time. And again, for those of you listening, uh, the website, www.julielarsonlcsw.com for more information about Julie. Thank you, Julie, again, uh, and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Breast of Everything podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Brown of Comprehensive Breast Care. We want to hear from you, so if you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, we welcome the suggestions. Just send them to comprestcare.com. That's comprestcare.com. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Breast of Everything podcast with your host and board-certified breast surgeon, Dr. Eric Brown of Comprehensive Breast Care. If you have a subject you would like the surgeons to discuss, please email your suggestions online at compbreastcare.com. That's C-O-M-P-B-R-E-A-S-T-C-A-R-E.com. The doctors want to hear from you. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in this podcast are intended for general education and informational purposes only and should not be substituted for medical advice, treatment, or care from your physician or healthcare provider. Always consult your healthcare provider first.